don't know if you've ever done this, but uh, the, this week I was driving out, drove out the back, backed out of my garage, and I was driving up the street, and my car felt particularly sluggish. Now, let me tell you about my car. It is about 16 years old, and it's done about 260,000 kilometres. So even on its best day, it kind of you know, feels a bit sluggish. Uh, but this day, it felt particularly sluggish, and so I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe it's like really cold outside and the engine just hasn't kind of warmed up this morning uh, or whatever. So I was kind of thinking, what, what is going on with this car? Oh, no, how much is this going to cost me? I'm going to have to put it in uh, to get a service and get it fixed and all the rest of it. And then I just realized as I looked down that I had the handbrake on. And so I just, you know, I don't know if you've done this, but it actually, if I'm to be honest, it actually happened to me twice this week. So, uh, I, uh, so I put the handbrake down and the car kind of drove forward as it's supposed to. Well, last week, as I uh, shared about the Holy Spirit, uh, I kind of described a situation like that, that we can actually sometimes have a handbrake on the Holy Spirit. And that actually uh, uh, our Christian life and our life with God can actually start to become uh, sluggish and not drive as it should because we've actually got a handbrake on the Spirit. And perhaps that could be out of fear. Uh, It could be because in times past you've experienced uh, abuse in the church when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Or perhaps it just comes from doubt. You don't know what you believe from the Scriptures about the Holy Spirit. Or whatever it is, sometimes in our life it could be sin, it could be uh, not walking with the Lord, and it could be walking by the flesh, that we actually just pull up the handbrake on the Holy Spirit and our life feels sluggish. And so this morning I want to ask you quite seriously, in your heart as you consider your own life, do you have a handbrake on the Holy Spirit in your life? Is the handbrake just kind of pulled up, perhaps it's out of fear or it's out of doubt, or something in your life, do you have a handbrake up on the Holy Spirit? I think one of the big factors, one of the big reasons for this uh, in our culture is that we live in the post-Enlightenment era. You know, of course, in the 17th and 18th century, we saw the rise of science and we saw the rise of research and sophistication, and that's brought a lot of great things into our lives, into our world. But it also, in some sense, has impacted our spirituality. It has had a dampening effect on our spirituality. And that effect is kind of how you, what you might describe as putting God in a box. God goes in the box of our human intellect. God can only do what we can conceive of in our mind. And to be honest, if you think about it, sometimes that's easier, right? Sometimes it's easier just to relate to God conceptually to just kind of uh, just allow God to only do what your mind can conceive of. And it's actually a little bit harder to get to that place of becoming familiar with God and actually having a real relationship with God. Now, I don't mean this. I don't mean that, uh, girls, Jesus is your boyfriend, or that, boys, Jesus is your homeboy. So I don't mean like that kind of familiar. We're actually supposed to have reverence for God because of who God is, but God actually also invites us into relationship, that he actually wants us to have this familiarity with with him, that we actually can call God our Abba, Father. And so he wants us to have this relationship with him. Now, this wasn't really like this pre-enlightenment. 
In fact, when you actually look at some of the Puritan writers, some of their writing actually almost sounds like romance. Now, it's not romance, but the, but the words that they actually use almost sound like this extremely familiar relationship with God. For example, Jonathan Edwards says, and I've quoted this to you before, sometimes only mentioning a single word will cause my heart to burn within me. Only seeing the name of Christ or some attribute of God will suddenly make my heart burn and God suddenly appears glorious to me, making me have exulting thoughts of him. When I enjoy this sweetness, it seems to carry me above the thoughts of my estate. It seems that at such times I am at such a loss that I cannot bear it and I cannot bring myself to take my eye from this glorious present object to turn it to myself or to my interest. He has such beautiful relationship with God, but sometimes we can be so impacted by just rational thought, by the mind, by having control over why things happen in our life the way they do, that they've actually dampened our affections for God and we have actually closed ourselves off to the supernatural power of God. And it's actually become part of our DNA and it has impacted the church to become cynical about the manifest power of God because we've been conditioned by our culture to do that. And so we say something like, thank you, God, for sending Jesus, and thank you for the Holy Spirit. But actually, but now we kind of, we don't really need you because we actually function with our mind, and we actually function with our intellect. We don't actually need you to move. We don't actually need to see your power at work because, you know, we have grown up to maturity in orthodoxy, so we don't actually need to experience God. As I said last week, if you have the Word... Without the Spirit, you will dry up. If you have the Spirit, without the Word, you will blow up. But if you have the Word and the Spirit together, you will grow up. And so this is what we're aiming for. We want to stand on the authority of Scripture, and yet we want the presence of the Holy Spirit to come and to manifest His presence among us. And so last week... In 1 Corinthians 12, which is where uh, we're going to be from 12 to 14 this morning, we opened up a discussion about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit makes his home in a person's life through faith in Jesus, he comes bearing gifts. He comes bearing spiritual gifts. And we define spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are God-empowered abilities as followers of Jesus, to be used for the building up of the church. They're actually God-empowered abilities. God gives us these things when we come to faith in Christ. We talked about using them by combining them with our passions, and our spiritual gifts with our passions are actually what give us a ministry in life and in the church. We looked at how we can be ignorant of spiritual gifts, and particularly for Corinth, their ignorance was that they had elevated one gift, which was speaking in tongues, above all the other gifts. But we also saw that for Paul, that didn't make sense, because God himself is a unity through diversity. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that is what the church should actually be, be represent. We should demonstrate God. We should be both unified through the diversity of our gifts. There is no one that is more important than the other. 
And then we looked at the nature of the gifts in chapter 12 itself, and we saw that they were miraculous in nature, and I defined them and also gave some personal examples of them. Then I gave four views on the spiritual gifts, if you remember that. Four different views because on this issue of the manifestations of the Spirit, there's all kinds of debate in the Christian church. And so I talked about cessationism, the idea that the the spiritual gifts have ceased and are no longer for today. I talked about the open but cautious position that uh, people, people who want to be open to what God can do, but because they've seen a lot of abuse, they're cautious about how those things function. And so what often happens is they don't function. And then I talked about the position of being a continuationist, which is the belief that all of the gifts that were given to the early church continue today, including the miraculous gifts. And then I talked about the second baptism teaching, which was, you'll have to go back to that message last week if you want to look into that more. And then I shared uh, my personal journey in the Word to saying and believing that I believe that all the gifts continue and are available to the church today. But then I asked you this, what do you believe about the spiritual gifts and why? Part of my problem is that growing up, I just kind of started parroting what I heard other people say. But it wasn't until I actually uh, explored and discovered those things from the Word myself that I came to the position that I did. So what do you believe about spiritual gifts and why? Secondly, what are your passions and giftings and how are you using them in the church? And then thirdly, are you just going to a church or are you being the church? Because this whole issue of spiritual gifts kind of hinges on that. Are you just going to church or are you being the church? Because being the church would require that we come into closer community so that we can actually administer the spiritual gifts to one another. And so this morning, I want to ask this. Do you have a handbrake on the Holy Spirit? Now, at this point, you might say, oh, wow, I've been coming here for a couple of years and Pastor Andy, he seemed, you know, really solid. You know, in the Word, he's kind of seemed quite solid and maybe he's now about to take us south. You know, take us into a really kind of weird and like wacky sort of thing. And so you might be thinking, okay, you know, I've got my foot out the door, ready to run from this sort of business. But maybe taking the handbrake off the Holy Spirit is not what you think it is. Or not what you think it might look like. Because in chapter 14, verses 1, just have a look there, Paul gives a summary description in one verse, which kind of sums up the whole thing, in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Just have a look at verse one. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. He says it like this. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. This is his summary statement of the whole section. Let me show this to you. Because if you believe chapter 12, you believe that spiritual gifts are given for the common good. So desire the spiritual gifts because they're given for the common good. If you believe chapter 13, which we're going to have a look at in a minute, you're going to pursue love as the most excellent way. So above all of the gifts, love is the most important value in the church. And if you believe chapter 14, which we're going to look at more next week, it will be that especially that you prophesy in the church. So this is his summary. This is how you would summarize chapter 12, 13, and 14. Pursue love earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. That is the clearest teaching on this unit of three chapters that I can see. And that's what taking the handbrake off the Holy Spirit 
would look like. Now remember, a handbrake on the Holy Spirit was not Corinth's problem. The, the problem for the Corinthian church was that they were going way above the speed limit on the spiritual gifts. They were, they were going wild, they were going crazy, they were driving all over the road with spiritual gifts. But Paul would never have intended this teaching to be used to actually pull the handbrake up on the Holy Spirit, as has been done, but rather to drive as God intended for the spiritual gifts. So let's have a look at those three things. Firstly, pursue love the more excellent way. Have a look, flick back to chapter 13. Uh, Paul writes this famous wedding chapter for all the weddings of history, but kind of not really. Uh, It's a chapter wedged in the middle of a church doing spiritual stuff on steroids and in the process forsaking the more excellent way of love. So why is love the most excellent way? Well, have a look here. It's firstly because of the supremacy of love. Just have a look at the first three verses. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, so even if I you know, give up my body to be martyred for the faith, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, love is supreme. It is the supreme value of the church. That's why Paul says, pursue love. It's the most excellent way. Now, notice what he does here is he really kind of describes in that section all the exciting stuff. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being around the person that has prophetic powers and they can understand all mysteries and they're actually that person who has enough faith that can remove mountains. They can say to that mountain, move and it moves. It's really exciting stuff. And so we contrast love against the really exciting stuff to say that love is supreme. Love is greater. It's better then all that exciting stuff that you can imagine, if it's not done with love, then it actually means nothing, that you gain nothing, that the church gains nothing, unless we have love. And so love is supreme. Well, then we go on to see the power of love. Have a look at verses four to seven. It says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, when I read this, I thought to myself, compared to that first three verses, this is all the boring stuff, isn't it? Like that list there, he compares it to all the boring stuff, like enduring. Huh. Who wants to endure or who wants to be patient? Anyone, everyone just love patience here? Anybody love patience? I don't think anybody really loves patience. But what Paul's doing here is he's describing the power of love. He's describing the power of it. Now, here's the, here's, here's the thing. If you glance inside the church in various different churches, you'll see the clanging symbols. You'll see the look at me kind of thing. You, 
you see that kind of big show of all those things in verse 3, and you can see them in various places in churches, but if you look closer, you'll see those who are patient, and you'll see those who are kind, and you see those who are bearing all things, and their hope, hope is in Him, and that they're enduring all things, and that's more... That's more powerful. It's more powerful. To demonstrate love in the midst of those things is more power. Well, thirdly, he goes on to show the permanence of love. In verse 8, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And so he's saying here that love compared to the spiritual gifts is permanent. The spiritual gifts are going to pass away. When the perfect comes, when the perfect conditions of the kingdom come, they won't be needed anymore. But love will remain in the kingdom. Love will be a key feature of the kingdom. And so the perfect is described as knowing fully, as full maturity in Christ. It's described in verses 9 to 12 there as seeing Christ face to face. And so it talks about maturity. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so he's describing these perfect conditions of the kingdom, full maturity in Christ, and the spiritual gifts will no longer be needed. Love will be the character of, king, of the kingdom. Now, he finishes that section by saying, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love, those great uh, features of the Christian life, of the kingdom, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. Why so? Well, the reason is, of course, when the perfect comes, right now we do need faith, and right now we do need hope. But in the kingdom, we won't need faith or hope anymore because our faith will be made sight, we'll see him face to face, and the hope that we have, which is our confident expectation that the things that God has said will come to pass, we will no longer need those because we will be in it. We'll experience it. And yet love is the greatest because love will never pass away. Love will be the key feature of the kingdom. It will never end. And so in all this discussion and practice about the gifts, this is the most excellent way because it reflects the nature of the future realized kingdom of God. And so the question I have for you is this. Are you pursuing love above all things in the church? Above all the things that you're pursuing in your life, are you pursuing love? Just think about the contrast of importance. Say, for example, we start to pray and we start to ask God, God, we want more manifestations of the Spirit. And we want to see miracles and we want to see healings and we want to see people speaking in tongues and we want to see prophecies. We want to see all these things. But then someone comes along and they come to the church and they say, 
I need to purchase a machine for my breathing because I, I, I can't afford to purchase this machine for my breathing, as happened to us with Alison Williams, who came to the church. Now, what would you say if the whole church is, everyone's kind of sharing a prophetic word and speaking in tongues and doing miracles and healings, and yet when a person like that comes and asks for help for two and a half thousand dollars to purchase that, no one comes to the party. And everyone just kind of leaves uh, her, you know, in, in the struggle that she has without what she needs. That's no good. Church, your demonstration in that particular circumstance was the more excellent way, and it always will be the more excellent way. To this, I believe that Jesus would say to the church, well done, because within 12 hours, all the money was raised. Praise God. Because that's the heartbeat of the kingdom. That's the heartbeat of God to pursue love. It never ends. At the same time, in our prayer meeting on Wednesday night as we were praying, I was really convicted about at times showing partiality. Sometimes there'll be a person that comes into this building that I kind of look at and I think, yeah, I can connect with you. And then there might be another person that comes in that I look at and I think, oh, I don't think I can connect with you. Or I judge them on their outward appearance or they're clearly experiencing disadvantage or something like that, and you treat them differently. You don't treat them the way that God sees them, as his loved creation made in his image. And I think, yeah, there's still some more for me to do in my life to pursue love. Because often what we pursue is like. We pursue like. There's no, there's no cost in like, there's no cost involved, because automatically you just like, you just like them. You like the look of them, you like the way they sound, you like just something about them, you like, you like the connection that you have with them, but love is different. Love actually costs you something, look at Jesus. Jesus came and how did he demonstrate love? Well, he hung on the cross, it cost him everything in order to demonstrate true love, and that's got to be the nature of love in the church. We have to pursue love in, in a way that it actually costs us something. It actually, it's going to cost a little bit of comfort. It's going to cost a bit of time. It's going to cost what you could get if you kind of just stayed with liking some people. You're going to have to actually sacrifice that sometimes and actually to demonstrate love. But that's the more excellent way. And so taking the handbrake off the Holy Spirit is actually allowing the Holy Spirit, to produce all kinds of radical love in you that you didn't even know existed in you and that you couldn't do in your flesh alone. You couldn't do on your own except for the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in you, producing that in you. It means you actually get down lower than you ever have to wash the feet of other people. So it's not that weird and wacky view that you may have when you've seen the Holy Spirit abused out there. It is actually radical demonstrations of love See, when you walk into a community, when you walk into our community, you won't be able to know the presence of God by how amazing the music is. And it is, it is amazing. They're awesome. Love our team. 
Uh, you won't be able to by the quality of the, the preaching or whether you see any signs and wonders happen in this building. It won't be that. It will actually be by the people's love. So the highest order is to pursue love. But that doesn't mean that the spiritual gifts are not important. Some of us might be like, well, sweet, I'll just stick to that love thing and those kind of weird crew can do the spiritual gifts. But Paul says as part of his summary in 14 verse 1, to earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Actually, this two words, earnestly desire, in the Greek, it's actually just one word. And the word actually carries the meaning of being jealous for or coveting that. And so that's the kind of uh, extent of what Paul is saying, be jealous for them, earnestly desire them, covet the spiritual gifts. Well, John Piper says this, he says, I wonder how many of us have said for years that we are open to God's moving in spiritual gifts, but have been disobedient to this command to earnestly desire them. I would ask all of us, are we so sure of our hermeneutical procedure, which is the way you interpret the text of the Bible, for diminishing the gifts that we would risk walking in disobedience to a plain command of Scripture? And see, taking the handbrake off the Holy Spirit, for some of you, might actually be asking God for gifts that perhaps you've never asked for. The risk for them in Corinth was that they'd gone crazy with them. But I don't think that's our present concern. Our risk is that we do not earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The handbrake is on. We can just get along with our cerebral Christianity now that we're mature in orthodoxy. But I do not think that Paul wrote this for that kind of use of the text. And so taking the handbrake off the Holy Spirit starts with actually welcoming whatever biblical manifestations of the Spirit God may have for your life. Perhaps it starts with actually examining in the Bible what those gifts are. And then perhaps it goes into a prayer that perhaps you've never prayed. Lord, I want to welcome the gifts of the Holy Spirit into my life. Not because I need a faith based on phenomena, and signs and wonders, but because through all the gifts that you have for me, I can use them to build up your church. Lord, if it be wisdom or knowledge or courageous faith or words of encouragement or gifts of healing or teaching or spiritual leadership or serving or mercy, I seek these gifts for the glory and the building of your church. And so he says, pursue love, but he also says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Well, while we should pursue them all as a church, Paul says that there is one gift that has particular importance when the church is gathered. And so he finishes his sentence with this, especially that you may prophesy. Now, it sounds like Paul is actually undoing his whole previous argument that there's no one gift that is greater. Well, he's not doing that at all. He's particularly addressing what is most beneficial when the church is corporately gathered together. 
and that is to prophesy. And so if this is so important, we need to actually look at it. What is prophecy? Well, in the Old Testament, there are people who effectively serve as God's mouthpieces. And so the true prophets, they never spoke on their own authority or shared their personal opinions, but they delivered messages that God gave them. So let me give you some examples. God promises Moses in Exodus 4.12, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And then God assured Moses, I will raise up for my people a prophet like you and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. Or the Lord said to Jeremiah, a prophet, I have put your words in my mouth. God commissioned Ezekiel by saying, you must speak my words to them. And many of the Old Testament prophetic books begin with the words, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Jonah, Amos. Because these men were mouthpieces of God. And not only men, but also women were mouthpieces of God. Now, some features of this is that this was a message from God. It was divine revelation through human agency. Notice as well that it was not always future orientated. It was not always speaking about what was to come in the future, although sometimes it was that. Often this word that the prophets had for the Lord, from the Lord, was actually calling out the spiritual state of the people. Now there were also, uh, it's important to note, that there were strict standards for Old Testament prophets. If they spoke falsely, it meant death. And so the question comes for us as we come into the New Testament Is the Old Testament gift of prophecy the same as we see actually encouraged here in Corinth? Because it seems like the stakes are kind of high at the moment. If you get it wrong, that's it. Well, there's a number of passages of Scripture to wade through that I simply can't uh, sort of say all the arguments. But one of the things I think is important to note is in the Old Testament book of Joel, Joel prophesies this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And at Pentecost, which is in the New Testament, an event that happened after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the beginning of the church as we know it, Peter when he stood up to preach, quoted this from Joel to say that that time has come where all God's people shall prophesy. And we see that through the New Testament. There's a number of people who prophesy. You see in Acts 21, Philip's four daughters prophesy. You see Agabus in Acts 21 who prophesies. And of course, these prophecies did not all become part of the written scriptures. They didn't all become part of the written scriptures. And so it seems to me that prophecy is divine revelation from God that people in the church may receive. It could be small, a very small thing. It could be something big. It could be scripture 
or it could be something about a particular circumstance, a current day circumstance, that does not threaten the canon of Scripture at all. Uh, The great preacher Charles Spurgeon of the 18th century said this, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it, and so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all the things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. And so the nature of this is not Scripture threatening in any way. It doesn't attempt to add to Scripture nor take away from it, but it's a timely revelation to both the giver and to the receiver of God's manifest presence. Now, I want to ask you this question. Does God still speak? Does God still speak? Or or is it a case that we have the words of the Bible written down And we are to read those words, and that is the extent of how God speaks. Does God still speak? The answer that I personally take from my reading of Scripture is that, yes, God still speaks for the purpose that Paul states in verses, chapter 14, verse 3, that the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So it actually helps us experience personally the Scripture-revealed reality that God does indeed know when we sit down and when we rise up, that He's acquainted with all our ways, and even before a word is on our lips, He knows it altogether. That He's not distanced from our lives, but He's near and He's active and He's making Himself known. But as opposed to the Old Testament prophets, here in the church age, we are given instructions to weigh what is said. Because all Christians should know, and all of us should know here, that just because somebody says that they have a word from the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean that they do. Now, interestingly, I think that that means that we should follow the same practice that we follow when we actually read the authoritative revelation of God in this word. You see, every time that I come to the, to the Word uh, in my personal devotion or to prepare a message for Sunday is I actually firstly receive the revelation, I read the revelation, I receive it, and then what I do is I actually go through a process of interpreting that revelation. So I go through a whole bunch of a process of context and, um, and understanding the meaning of that text and I go through that process of interpretation. And then thirdly, what I do is that I then seek to apply that revelation to my life or apply it to us as a church. And so I follow those steps, revelation, interpretation, and then application. And I think that's the same thing that we ought to do if we were to receive a prophecy. We should receive the revelation. We should then go through the process of interpreting what that revelation means and then actually to the place of application. Now, let me give you some personal testimonies about this in my life. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we, uh, as a, Michelle and I, we obviously had, we got two kids, Indiana and Jude, we're going along. I really had a desire to have a third uh, child, and Michelle came to that place as well, and so we were really hoping for a third child, but throughout all of our life um, with having children, it's not been easy. 
Uh, and so that's why there's four years between each of our kids. Um, so we had two kids, and uh, we kind of was hoping for a third, but it wasn't happening. Had kind of stopped praying about it, kind of stopped thinking about it, and kind of thinking that we were having two kids. Well, anyway, uh, one day, uh, Tiana, uh, who works on our team, staff team, came along, uh, and she came up to me quite nervously and a little bit kind of not sure whether to share it. But she just said, I've sort of been holding back on sharing this, but I just wanted to say that I had a dream that you and Michelle were going to have a third child. And uh, she goes, I feel really like I don't want to, you know, build up your expectation or disappoint you or whatever, but I just really wanted to share it with you because it was so strong, so strong. And so uh, I, I received the revelation and then I went away and I actually just decided, well, Lord, I actually haven't asked you for a long time about a third child and it is actually a desire of my heart and it's a desire of our heart to, to have a third child but it hasn't really happened and so, Lord, well, I just want to come before you and if that's what you have for us, I want to ask you for that and, um, and just that you would bless us with a third child. Well, anyway, two months later, we found out that we got pregnant and um, when we got that news, we were really excited about having that third child but not only that, we were just totally amazed that God had worked in that so that we would actually seek him and pray and ask him again uh, for that and so that when it happened, we just gave him all the glory and all the praise. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you have uh, glorified yourself in the midst of this provision. And so that, that was just one example in my life of, of God uh, demonstrating that he is near and that he is manifesting his presence in uh, my life. Well, there's been other examples too. I remember uh, late last year, I was, came on a Sunday morning and I was feeling particularly unwell and I was feeling also really discouraged. I was feeling really down and I had to preach that morning and I didn't feel like preaching and I was kind of really struggling in my soul before I got to preach just before I got up to preach, um, young Ben Taylor came up to me and he said, mate, I just got a text message from my dad who doesn't go to our church, who lives in the country, saying I feel particularly led uh, to pray for your pastor this morning um, and can you pass that on? And so Ben came and said that to me. And as I got up to preach that morning, I just, uh, my heart just soared because I knew that God was with me. And I know that, I know that from the word, but in that particular moment, God manifested his power and his presence. There are other ways, I believe, that God lays things on our hearts. Sometimes, I don't know if you've experienced this, you wake up with a person's name on your mind, with a person's name on your heart. I would not ignore that. I would seek God and I would pray and I would pray for that person in that moment. There's times where God speaks to you, lays things on your heart about people and that you need to go and act and sit down and have a coffee with them and speak that word of encouragement into their life and oftentimes you will find that it is exactly what they needed. And you can see why Paul is encouraging this gift because of its enormous benefit to the church. It's, it's enormous encouragement to the church to actually know the manifest presence of God, because verse 3 says that it builds up, it encourages, and it consoles. And so, therefore, the role that you can play in the church is the role of a builder. 
What does a builder do? A builder takes raw materials, uh, supplies and tools, and they actually build something. They lay a foundation for something, and they build something on that foundation. And the person who prophesies can have that role in building up a person's life with the truth. Uh, A person who consoles, this describes a coach, somebody who spurs people on with words of encouragement to actually help them to continue on in their Christian life. You can play the role of a physician, somebody who uh, uh, the word is, there's uh, three, who actually, sorry, um, just lost the word, for their consolation. This is somebody who actually um, shores up the person. And so as a physician, you can be somebody who actually shores up that person with words of encouragement. And so how can we especially pursue prophecy in the church? Well, here's some practical things. Firstly, pray and ask for the gift. Pray and ask for the gift. Secondly, if you're in doubt about what you've received, wait. If it's something significant, I would say to follow the instruction of bringing it to the elders. Thirdly, When you're sharing a word of prophecy, check your language use. Don't come and say, thus says the Lord, but rather see see if this is from the Lord. I remember receiving a letter once from a trusted friend who pointed out a number of things in my life and prefaced it with, brother, see if this be from the Lord. Fourthly, make a practice of soaking in the word. It's powerful when God brings the scripture to bear in someone's life in a spontaneous moment. Someone did that with me this week as I was sharing. There's a whole bunch of scripture they could have used, but they used one which I've held this week. I've held in my heart. Before you come on Sundays, ask the Holy Spirit to bring someone to mind, particular in mind, for you to encourage and for something to encourage them with. And so, what is it like when the handbrake comes off the Holy Spirit? Perhaps it's not what we thought. It's not a descent into the wild and to the weird and the wacky, but it's a radical pursuit of love that results in action. It's an eager desire for spiritual gifts to actually come before the Lord and pray and say, Lord, I welcome the gifts into my life. And it's especially that we may prophesy for the building of one another up. So we're going to close now and invite the team to come and lead us in our final song. I just want to ask you all to just bow your heads just as we come before the Lord on this. I want to ask you, particularly this morning, because I've heard some testimony of this this week around the church. So I want to ask you this. Are you a bit down at the moment, spiritually? I want to ask, are you dry? Are you discouraged? Is your heart a little bit broken? I know there's a bit of that around because life is not just not making sense at the moment. I know that some of you are lacking some purpose. 
Some of you are feeling really guilty at the moment because you think you're a bad Christian. And some of you are just really low spiritually. I want you to know, quite simply, just something that has been brewing in my heart this week is that there are some of you who at the moment who need a rescue from something. You need a rescue from something. And the first step that I want to call you to is this, is to not look within yourself, to look at your resources and to look at your own life for that rescue that you need because it's not found there. The rescue is not going to come from your own effort. It's going to come from God. And so I want to call you this morning for the rescue that you need in your life to stop looking within and to look to him. I want to ask if that's particularly true for you this morning, that you need a rescue for something, that you might just respond this morning without anyone looking around just by raising your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. This is a whole bunch of people that put their hand up this morning just briefly. And what that means for us as a church is that we need to be a community that pursues love. Oh man, we, sometimes we just come into the church and we just go through the motions and there's people with their heart breaking over stuff. And we, we need to be a community of love. We really do. And we need to desire the spiritual gifts because these are the things, the God-empowered abilities I don't know about you, but sometimes I trade on my personality or I trade on something else to serve other people. I actually need God-empowered abilities to give people what they need. Especially that we may prophesy. Because they're for people's encouragement and upbuilding and their consolation. As we seek to do it, I believe that God will manifest his presence because he is the one who does know when we sit down, when we rise up. He's acquainted with all our ways. And even before a word is on our lips, he knows it all together. He's not distant from our lives, he's near. And he's active in making himself known.